you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. One of the most challenging attacks from Satan is his lie that suffering has no purpose. Of course, this comes within a framework of thought that says life really has no purpose to begin with. Everything is random. Thus, it is all meaningless. With that mindset emerges a different sort of purpose, the purpose to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Pleasure becomes the ultimate purpose of life, since there is no real, eternal, substantive purpose to life. Even Christians can lose a sense of purpose, especially in the midst of suffering. Then, in their desire to find a purpose, they can be led to wrong answers, such as the ones given by Rabbi Kushner, the loudest voice on the purpose of suffering. Yes, I'm going to bring him up again, not just to bash him, but as an example of the prevailing belief on the purpose of suffering. I've heard some of these very same thoughts come from even devoted Christians. Now I'm going to go a little slowly and respond to each of his thought processes. First, Kushner says, The biblical mind saw the earthquake that overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah as God's way of punishing people of those cities for their depravities. Now, do you hear his criticism of those ancient people who lived during Bible times? They just simplistically saw the suffering of Sodom and Gomorrah as purposed by God to punish them. How foolish! But wait, the Bible actually tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their great sins. Kushner continues, Some medieval and Victorian thinkers saw the eruption of Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii as a way of putting an end to that society's immorality. Again, those stupid people of the past wrongly concluded that suffering has a purpose, and that purpose is controlled by God. They just assume that sexual immorality deserves God's wrath. Again, how silly. And then Kushner goes on. Even today, the earthquakes in California are interpreted by some as God's way of expressing his displeasure with the alleged homosexual excesses of San Francisco or the heterosexual ones of Los Angeles. Well, I guess Kushner is claiming this is what Christians believe, even modern, supposedly intelligent Christians. Even if we don't believe this is the purpose of his earthquake, you see how Kushner is building his argument for the irrationality of believing suffering ever has a purpose. And that's exactly what he clearly states next. But most of us today see a hurricane, an earthquake, a volcano as having no conscience I would not venture to predict the path of a hurricane on the basis of which communities deserve to be lashed and which ones to be spared. All these things happen at random. There is no reason for particular people to be afflicted rather than others. You hear how he says, most of us. 
He means most enlightened people, most intelligent people, most sensible people. They believe that all these natural events are just random. There is no reason, no purpose for them at all. Now, if you believe life is random, then of course these weather events are random. And no one supposes a hurricane, earthquake, or volcano as having consciences, choosing whom they'll destroy. No, we believe that there is a sovereign God behind all these things. And if that is true, then there is purpose, Rabbi Kushner, to teach people that suffering in their lives is random and devoid of purpose is to truly offer absolutely no hope. We all just end up being victims of this cold, cruel, chaotic world. So these next two episodes will distill and organize the biblical principles regarding the purpose of suffering. Yes, we must begin with the presupposition that all of our suffering has a God-ordained purpose. None of it is random. At the same time, there is not a singular purpose that keeps everything simple either. The purpose of suffering is multifaceted and complicated at times. Well, let's begin with a biblical case study in this episode, the biblical case study of the Apostle Paul. Paul is one of our best case examples of suffering for Christ. Jesus himself taught us this fact about Paul. Listen to Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So here are some truths about the Apostle Paul and suffering. First, The Apostle Paul was chosen by God to declare the gospel before Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel, as you just heard. Second, the Apostle Paul's mission in life was to be a life of suffering. And third, we know that the Apostle Paul taught that it was necessary for Christians to go through many sufferings and tribulations before they can enter the kingdom of God. Listen to Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Do you believe this? Through many tribulations? Then there's 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, where Paul writes to Timothy, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, I'm not sure all Christians believe this. I'm not sure that I want to believe it at times. Persecution from non-Christians, the devil, and sometimes even professing Christians will come into our life. Well, then fourth, it was the Apostle Paul's deep desire to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. He wanted to respond to adversity in the same manner in which Jesus did. Listen to Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, 
if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you desire to know Christ so much that you will fellowship in his sufferings? Or just the fellowship in his peace and comfort part? Take a moment to consider the meaning of those words of Paul. He saw one of the purposes in his life as communing with Jesus through his sufferings. Which leads us to the reality that the Apostle Paul suffered much in his life and learn much through it all. Listen to some larger sections of Scripture from the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes, We give no offense in anything, that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, in distress, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Do you hear all that Paul learned from his suffering? Suffering is the greatest of teachers for the Christian Well, Paul has more to say in chapter 11, verses 16 to 33. Again, a longer section, but listen to it. Paul writes, I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whenever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. 
In Damascus, the governor under Eratos, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Do you hear it? Do you hear the life of suffering Paul lived? But of course, part of us says, that's just Paul, or that's just the life of a missionary or a church planter. It's not for the normal Christian, right? Well, we need to just read one more passage and hear from Paul once again in chapter 12, verses 5 through 10. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what had Paul learned from his suffering? He learned a whole lot. In the end, he learned one overarching lesson— God's grace and strength in weakness. What a purpose in suffering that we all need. Well, with the case study of Paul firmly in our minds, let's get to the issue itself, our understanding of the purpose of suffering. We'll state the overarching issues this way. First, can suffering teach us anything? If so, what? Second, is it possible to waste suffering? And third, how is suffering related to eternity? Just to be clear, Rabbi Kushner, with his majority view, ridicules the idea that suffering is meant to teach us something. Here is his logic again. He says, God does not send suffering or he would not be good. It is random. Second, Kushner says, it would be mean and unkind to teach humans something by making them suffer. That is akin to teaching a child to not touch the stove by putting his hand on the stove. And third, he says, if God does bring suffering to teach us, what are we to learn? We never know. Well, if we actually as Christians do believe suffering has a purpose, since that's what God's word says... Then, in order for one to experience the redemptive value which Jesus Christ has given to pain and suffering through his cross work and resurrection, there is responsibility which we must accept. So here we go. Here are the responsibilities of the Christian to know the purpose of suffering. First, the purpose of the call of the Christian life is to Christ-likeness through suffering. This is so fundamental. Let me say it again. The call of the Christian life is to Christ-likeness through suffering. Listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 8. 
When Jesus had called the people to himself with his, his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what does it mean to deny self, to take up one's cross? Well, it means many things, but it certainly means dying to self-interests, which is a process of suffering. Think about how losing your life in Christ is always connected to suffering. What happens if you gain the whole world? In other words, have no suffering. And what happens when you're ashamed of Jesus and his words about suffering? Now let's read 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. You therefore, Paul writes, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Can a soldier of Christ attempt to live a life without suffering? No way. Just as a soldier on the front lines has to endure hardship, so do we. Entangling ourselves with the affairs of this life includes finding comfort in this world, includes trying to avoid suffering at all costs. The Christian life must take us on a path of suffering. So suffering always has an overall purpose of producing Christ-likeness in us. Secondly, the experiences of affliction in the life of the Christian are under divine direction for good. Do you hear that, Christian? Suffering of mind, body, and soul are under God's sovereign direction for your good. We have been talking about that episode after episode in this series. Well, now let's read the definitive text from the Apostle Paul again. It is Romans 8, 28 through 39. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things include all of our suffering, right? Let's continue. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. You hear Paul's emphasis on the gracious and powerful sovereignty of God, don't you? When we are his, no one can come against us, which also means there is no random suffering that he has not purposed for us. 
Well, then Paul goes to the heart of the matter of God's control over our suffering. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is the comfort given to the Christian regarding his suffering? God is in control of our sufferings. No suffering, even the suffering of death, will separate the believer from the love of God. According to the Apostle Paul, can the good purpose of God in our sufferings always be known? No. We'll never learn ultimate purpose fully. But we do need to learn as much as we can from it. God has a purpose and a plan for all of our suffering. Now, in the last segment of this episode, we need to get more specific about the purpose of suffering under the umbrella of our two general truths. First, again, the call of the Christian life is Christ-likeness through suffering. And second, God is in control of our suffering for our good. But as we have discussed in a couple of other episodes, the experience of suffering is different for the non-Christian since that experience is different, we also must recognize that God's purposes for suffering of the non-believer is also different. So today we close out with principles regarding the purpose of suffering for the non-Christian. Hopefully this will help you in counseling your non-Christian friends and family. First purpose, to demonstrate the sovereignty and power of God to the non-believer. Think about the examples where God used suffering to teach pagans about himself, to teach about his holiness, his sovereignty, and his power. We have the example of the ten plagues. God used this extreme suffering to teach about his sovereignty over the Egyptian gods. How many Egyptians rejected their gods and turned to the one true God? Then there's the suffering Philistines, for example, in 1 Samuel 5. Listen to these verses as part of a story. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon, their God. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, again, non-believers. And he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. 
And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is harsh towards us and on Dagon, our God. The Philistines learned to fear God. Then there's Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar is my absolute favorite character in all the Bible. He was driven to madness, lost his kingdom, and in all that, he finally saw the one true God and his sovereignty. Isn't it interesting that we are often afraid of talking about the sovereignty of God with non-believers? Why is that? Well, in his mercy, God will show them his power and might. Through their suffering, non-believers can learn there is only one true God. Which leads us to the second specific purpose for suffering in the life of the non-Christian. To confront the non-Christian with his need for God. Now, what are some examples of that in Scripture? Well, we have a great story of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. Do you remember that one? Let me read it to you. But at midnight, Paul and Silas, who were in jail, were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, the guard, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had all fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The greatest question of all time. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. How else could a pagan jailer come to Christ? Only through suffering. Well, then there's the example of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Jesus opened his eyes, and he could see Jesus. A picture of the non-Christian's blindness towards God that needs to be opened through suffering. Then, of course, there's the ultimate example, the criminal on the cross from Luke chapter 23. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Notice the contrast of responses. What that teaches us is that suffering doesn't always lead a person to faith in Jesus Christ. But it does teach us that deathbed conversions are real. If I may be so bold, suffering is the best opportunity for an unbeliever to look to God. Suffering for the non-believer has great potential impact. So is it wrong to say that we want unbelievers to suffer? 
Well, if we truly love non-Christians, our non-Christian family and friends, then we would want God to use their suffering to draw them to himself. We should not want unbelievers to suffer out of spite, of course, or just to see them miserable. We want them to look to Jesus. But we must recognize also that relief from suffering can be found without God in this world. And also that temporary affliction does not often change the heart. In the short term, people can actually become more bitter and hard-hearted towards God in their suffering. Or temporary suffering may produce temporary superficial sorrow. As I've said in other podcasts, there's a big difference between pain relief and true repentance and true healing. The reality is, if the suffering unbeliever doesn't come to Christ in this life, he faces eternal suffering. Thus, suffering has one big purpose for the unbeliever that we should never forget, to drive them to the cross for true relief from their suffering. Well, we'll continue with the purposes of suffering for the Christian next time. God bless. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.